Welcome to episode 88 of the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Uh, today we will be covering the Cardinals and the Cubs. Uh, I'm Jason Collette, joined again by Eno Saris. What's going on, Eno? Not much. Uh, I'm uh, excited that we uh, are getting the spelling yeah. right now. <laughs> We're getting our ABCs in order for a change, so we've got these right two teams. Uh, thanks for everybody for the feedback from the last few episodes. We're glad you like it. Uh, that you're liking things so far. Uh, if we don't get to a uh, a player, we only have so much time to cover it. We're doing two teams per episode, so we only have so much time. If we don't get to a player that you wanted us to talk about, don't forget that on the Fangraph site, we there are the depth chart discussions that will be going on for every single team. That's a great place to get some crowdsourced information. Go in there and see what people are saying. Or, again, reach out to the co- in the comments, as, as many of you did. Uh, you wanted to talk about Freddie Freeman or uh, Andrelton Simmons or anything like that, use the comment section. So if we don't get to somebody within the podcast, we can always cover it uh, within a comment. And if we somehow miss your comment, just bug us and we'll eventually get to you. Cool deal. All right, let's dive into the Cardinals. Uh, And the first guy that somebody wanted to talk about was Alan Craig. Alan Craig last year was still a valuable fantasy player, even though the power kind of slipped off. Uh, had a little more playing time he did in 2012, hit nine fewer home runs, but still drove in just as many runs, uh, even a few more actually, than he had done the previous season. And his skills were pretty much in line uh, across the board there. Uh, what are your thoughts for Alan Craig in 2014 as he comes into the season eligible at both first base and the outfield? Uh, I'm glad that he has that outfielder designation. Um, you know, just because most people play in in fifth out in five outfielder leagues, and uh, and uh, you know, I think that he is a little bit borderline to be top twelve for uh, first baseman. Just considering that, um, you can only really count on the batting average. I think, uh, and the power can be anywhere from ten to twenty twenty five homers. Honestly. That's yeah, about where he is. I mean, I've I've heard the comment the new Mark Grace, and I don't, I'm not terribly uncomfortable with that. I know in the FSTA draft that was in Vegas last week that we mentioned, Alan Craig was taken with the sixth pick of the fifth round when he went just behind Josh Donaldson, and I'm I'm a big fan of Donaldson, so I think uh, that's cool with me. Just a step ahead of Hunter Pence. And he went a, a spot ahead of Eric Hosmer. And if we consider Alan Craig as a first baseman, who would you rather have? Would you rather have Craig or would you rather have Hosmer? I think I'd rather have Hosmer. Uh, I don't think that Hosmer is going to steal more bags in the future. Um, but I think they probably have uh, similar power outputs. Uh, might might be uh, more comfortable. Well, they have similar power outputs because they have similar batted ball profiles. They both hit too many ground balls. And um, where Hosmer's you know, batting average has been up and down, uh, I believe him as, a, as about a 280, 290 type guy. Um, and so I don't think that the difference there um, overcomes the 10 stolen bases that I think Hosmer will steal. This I agree year. with all that. The thing with in their ADPs are almost identical. They're, they're right next to one another in reviewing their ADP. Craig is 52. Uh, Hosmer's 51. So they're right there. You can uh, flip flop either. Really depends on, I guess, you know where you've picked ahead of time. So in that same draft, the guy who took Craig had taken Hanley, Longoria, Freeman, and Price in front of him. The guy who took Hosmer, Cano, Beltre, Bruce, Bumgarner. So similar kind of structure. Uh, it looks like one was pursuing a little more speed and the other one was just looking, okay, you know, take the best guy available uh, with that format. I mean, with Craig, consistent skills, walk rate, strikeout rate have almost been identical each of the past three seasons. There's a lot to like about that. So stable skills. Can his power come back? Can he hit 20? I don't think so. I think there's just, and there's nothing wrong with this. There's just a lot of line drive to his swing. His home run to fly ball rate dropped about five percentage points last year. Uh, So it'll be a push for him to hit 20, but I think he's a lock to hit at least 290. Yeah. um, 
I want to believe. I mean, he's he's hit twenty before, and it wasn't it wasn't in five hundred and fourteen plate appearances. So you always feel like, oh, and he hit twenty six one year in the minors, and you know, there is uh, you you kind of think of him as a twenty plus homer hitter guy. But I looked at his uh, batted ball distances for the last three years, and uh, it's been kind of stark. I mean, he went from um, he went from twenty fourth in the league uh, in batted ball distance in 2011 so that's that's mm-hmm. that's pretty good he was averaging about 300 uh feet on his homers and flies and that's that's really decent actually but um in, and he went from 24th in the league to uh and then you know 2012 was a little bit worse and then 2013 was a little bit worse and last year he was 161st in the league uh with a 279 uh, foot batted ball distance which is below average and right around him are Astrubal Cabrera Cole Calhoun, Stephen Drew, Carl Crawford, uh, Eric Young was ahead of him. So, um, you know, it's just uh, we're, we we tried last year to 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 draw a direct line from batted ball distance into um, expected home run for fly ball rates and stuff, and we did, weren't quite successful um, in 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 really knocking that out of the park. But I I do believe it's it shows that. Um, you know, he's post-peak in terms of age. He's turning right. 30. Uh, and uh, we thought that maybe power peaks a little bit earlier. I know this is a, a big point of discussion for people, whether power peaks earlier or later. But I do believe that sort of a, a player's athleticism peaks um, earlier in in the 24 to 25 mm-hmm. range. Uh, so we're, we're talking about, a, I would say, definitively post-peak guy um, who's shown a three-year erosion in batted ball distance. Um I, I just don't think that suggests that you know this is the year he's going to hit twenty five. Yeah, I agree. I think that I think we've already seen his career high in home runs. Personally, unless there's a, a, a demonstrable change in his approach, I, I think we've seen his career high. Uh, moving over to Matt Adams, uh, I know a lot of people are excited about Adams. I've been hit up on Twitter a lot about him. Uh, a couple of people made comments about Matt Adams. Now that he'll be on the major league roster for a full season. When we look at where he was drafted, he was taken in the towards the end of the twelfth round of the FSTA draft. He's currently fifteenth in overall first base ADP, just behind Anthony Rizzo and Jose Abreu, and ahead of guys like Brandon Belt, Mike Napoli, and Brandon Moss. Personally, I think he's too high right now. Uh, I, I would take the three guys behind him over Matt Adams. But before I get into my reasoning, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Um, I think. I, I agree with you. Um, I think there's more risk there than people are, are comfortable admitting. Um, you know, part of the thing is strikeout rates. Um, and you know, we've now seen him do uh, hit the majors twice in, in limited sample. But, you know, 400 plate appearances, he now has struck out a quarter of the time. Um, and when you look back at his minor league rates, you're, you might be – you can say, oh, well, he, he struck out 20% of the time in the minors. You know, th- is this too much? But I personally uh, have a rule of thumb when I look at the at minor league strikeout rate. If it says twenty percent, I I've, I pretty much say to myself, I don't know what that person's major league strikeout rate is going to be, because I've seen twenty percent turn into thirty uh, percent, and I've seen twenty percent you know stay the same. And in, so, in Paul Goldschmidt's uh, case, we've seen high twenties become low teens. Right, right. So I don't I don't like to. What I like to look at minor league walk and strikeout rates. I like to see that they're high on the walk side and low on the strikeout side just because I want to see that they're good players. I don't necessarily want to project those exact numbers into Major League numbers um, unless, you know, I have no tracker record in the Major Leagues. As is, he's seen uh, – let me see how many pitches he's seen. He's seen – 1,665 uh, Major League pitches. Yeah, so he's seen 1,600 pitches, and he's, he's swung at and missed over 10% of those. So he's a swing and miss guy. Um, and if you then pair that with what you know about his, you know, what people call country strong, which, you know, who knows if they'd say that if he was white, if he was black, but, um, he, uh, he, uh, he's a big, tall, strong guy who swings hard and he misses a lot. So I, I believe the quarter, uh, the, the 25% strikeout rate. And since I believe that, um, and I know that they shifted him more as the season went on. And that his batting average on balls in play dropped as he was shifted, and he's a big pull hitter. I, I'm thinking that the 270 uh, batting averages that he's projected into uh, are 
are possibly uh, generous. Yeah, agreed. I'm agreed yeah. on all the points. You know, my larger point is I again, I Brandon Belt, Mike Napoli, Brandon Moss, and Kendris Morales are the four guys behind him in ADP, and I would take all four of those guys over Matt Adams. I just think there's some helium in him, and that this kind of happens when we see a guy do well. Uh, in the postseason, but my, you know, a larger concern with Adams, you mentioned his strikeout rate. He also has demonstrated no ability to hit left-handed pitching at the major league level. Now, albeit he hasn't been given a lot of, he's only seen, he's only had 73 plate appearances against lefties uh, over the course of two seasons, but he's demonstrated zero ability to hit him. One walk and 73 plate appearances against lefties, 25 strikeouts. So that's going to cut into his playing time. Now, while some of the other guys may have their own issues with splits that are behind him, Brandon Belt being one of them, I, I still have a problem with, with projecting you know, f- more than 500, let's say 500 plate appearances for Matt Adams because if he gets more time against lefties, and when you, current, when you look at the current Cardinals depth chart, there really isn't a lot of options for first base behind him. So if he gets increased playing time, and gets to face more lefties, that's going to drag down his average. So to offset that kind of thing, if he let's say if he gets 550 to 575 plate appearances, this is a guy that could end up hitting 255, 260, and then is going to need to hit a lot more home runs to justify that kind of average. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't. I might not go as far as to take him. Um, well, now that you mentioned this, you're right. I was going to say when you first said Brandon Moss, I said, oh, hold on. Brandon Moss is a platoon guy. Um, but uh, you're making a compelling case that Adams might be too. And uh, so I, I checked out his minor league numbers, and he did strike out. Uh, he struck out 22% of the time against lefties uh, against uh, 17.6 against righties. So there's uh, there were some split in the minors already, and that was against inferior competition. So... Uh, there's that little wobble going in. Um, then there's the fact that they, they kept him away from lefties pretty much, um, you know, last season. And, um, and you know, not to be, you know, uh, we know that the, the Cardinals are all about winning. And, it, you know, just to look at the way the Cardinals are built and the way that they, um, you know, they take it forever with their prospects um, and their guys hit, uh, they they only play guys in roles that they feel comfortable and that they think will help the team win. There's no sort of in the major leagues rebuilding right. the Cardinals. Um, and so if they if they do think he's a platoon guy, then they have the personnel to move guys around and 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 make it work. I don't know if it's Alan Craig's at first against lefties and uh, Borges and Jay mm-hmm. both play. Um, or you know whatever it is that they figure out, but they they were they show they were willing to do that with Carpenter and with Freeze late in the season. They they decided that Freeze couldn't hit lefties anymore. Carpenter went over to third, and Wong started playing. So they 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 make these sort of decisions sort of quickly. And if if the Matt Adams train you know derails, it's it's because of this strikeout rate and because of this in, ineffectiveness against lefties, and because his team was willing to you know, take a third of his plate appearances away um, for somebody else. Exactly. Now, to go back to the point you mentioned Brandon Moss earlier. So if you are taking – if if somebody's taking Brandon Moss and Matt Adams, these are, these are first basemen that are being drafted for their power, not for their ability to hit for average. If you're looking – let's say you're right. in the, the, the 12th to 15th round, you're looking at a first baseman, and you're looking for home runs, which one of these guys are you willing – which one of these guys is more willing to hit 25 to 30 home runs, Moss or Adams? Yeah. Uh, you know, Moss is such a singular story. I mean, he used to be a slap hitting, you know, fourth outfielder. Who couldn't until, stick in Boston, couldn't uh, stick with Pittsburgh. And I think Philly's yeah, had him at one and, point and let him slide too. And Chili Davis said, grip it and rip it, man. Uh, and uh, and it's really worked out for him. So um, I, I, I guess I, what I'm saying is I believe, I believe what he's done um, – and I guess I will take the proven track record, but you know I say that here now. But in a draft, if it was really and truly the two of them, I might take Adams just because you know I'd say you know worst case scenario he's a platoon guy you know and has a bad batting average with high power. But best case scenario might be better than Moss. Yeah, I could see that when you look at I made mention earlier Adams was drafted at the towards the end of the twelfth round. Brandon Moss was drafted in the middle of the fifteenth round. So 
in that case, and I, I start to see your point for sure. Um, I'm trying to see. I mean, we always say if the price was equal, what would you do? And then if the price wasn't, you know. So Matt Adams in my in my draft went in uh, in the seventh round, ninety fifth. Wow. And I think that's way too much helium. I mean, you were talking about helium. I mean, uh, first baseman, the next first baseman uh, didn't go for a long time, and it was Jose Abreu, one hundred and thirty. Um, and then another next third first baseman was Brandon Belt, 149. So Brandon Belt, 149, uh, 50 picks after Matt Adams. That doesn't make that's, sense to me. That doesn't make sense to me at all. Yeah, that's a, that's a bit crazy. Um, staying with the offense, last year, Oscar Tavares was widely considered the either one of the the first or the second best hitting prospect in all of baseball. Uh, it was a lost season for him. The ankle injury really screwed him up. Saw a note uh, over the weekend that he's still rehabbing, has not yet even been cleared to run, but they also expect him to be 100% ready when players report to camp next month. Where do you think Oscar Tavares fits into this whole scenario for 2014? Um, well, I uh, actually wrote a piece um, about uh, the uh, the Cardinals' uh, Oh, that's nice. Just found it on another website. That's always good. Uh, without any mention of fan graphs. Anyway. Uh, Legal team. <laughs> the, <laughs> Jesus. And now and the, the table is all messed up, so i got to get it on fan graphs. Hold on. Uh, the Cardinals like them old. That was the name of my piece. And, um, <clears throat> and what, they, uh, what I'm trying to find is the average age. Um, uh, the average age of their debuts, uh, because they they are. Let's see here. It's taking forever. Come on, come on. Uh, here it is. Since 1990, the Cardinals have the second highest um, age uh, of their debut players. It does. does that make sense. I'm guessing the Rays. Their 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 average debut age is, is was second. The Mets were first, um, and the Athletics were third. Uh, the Rays uh, actually had the youngest um, by huh. one metric. They're all fairly close is one of the problems with the, the research. Uh, they're all right around 25. So we were talking about 25.1 versus 25.2 and so on. Uh, but there were a lot of different ways that I uh, sliced and diced it. And the Cardinals definitely came out um, old on all of them. And it might be because of the way they draft. Um, they never have a high uh, top 10 pick because they're always winning. Um, and so I think that they go with a little bit more college guys um, in rounds five through 10 than, than average. Um, and uh, that's how you get guys like uh, Matt Adams and uh, Carpenter and stuff. So um, I think that, uh, you know, what they do is they have a lot of guys that they want to play for them at their peak. And, um, you know, they, they, they don't, I don't know if this applies to Oscar Tavares because Oscar Tavares is not Matt Carpenter where, um, he has fringe tools across the board and, you know, but he could be good enough during his peak to do something for the team. Like a skip, skip Schumacher, think of him, you know, like he, he, Schumacher was like, you know, was, is barely a major leaguer, but they, they had him during his peak and he was useful. Um, that Oscar Tavares doesn't fit that mold, you know? And, you know, if you think back to the top prospects that were more like Oscar Tavares, I think they did get a shot fairly quickly. I mean, um, Albert Pujols, they didn't hold him in the minors, uh, for a long time. So, um, I feel like, uh, Oscar Tavares will get a shot with a great team like the Cardinals with, uh, two center fielders on the roster right now and four, um, maybe fringe, but four starting uh, outfielders uh, that could start for any team. Um, I think they're going to take their time. They're going to say to him, we want you to be healthy, so we'll wait until June, July to see if you're healthy. And if you're not uh, hitting like intensely well, then we'll give you until September, and then you know, maybe we'll give you a cup of coffee, and maybe it'll really get going. Yeah, that's exactly where I see him, too. When you, when you make the move for Borges – you know, you buy yourself some time. So it, it, you know, defensively, it gives them a nice upgrade over what John Jay was doing. So when you look at your full-time outfield of, of Holiday, uh, 
you know, most games, Holiday, Borges, and Craig, at least they've got something to buy the time. And, and offensively, there's still enough pop in this offense when you look at, you know, Carpenter adding J- Johnny Peralta and such that they've got enough to carry them. So there's no rush uh, to keep him up. I know he was drafted in the first round of the reserves in the FSTA. I just think, I agree. I, I still think 2015 is year. This missing all of that time with that ankle injury. I'll, I'll still be surprised uh, if he's 100% healthy in spring training. So cool your jets a little bit on him. Uh, we've talked about a few platoon situations. The last one we're going to talk about on offense is a second base situation. We have Colton Wong uh, and we have Mark Ellis. Mark Ellis was signed. Uh, that gives him a nice, clean platoon with, with Wong potentially getting most of the at-bats against the right-handed pitch and, and Ellis hitting lefties as he's done very well throughout most of his career, plus providing that really a strong defense at second base. How do you see that situation playing out? Uh, you know, considering that they pretty much straight platooned him uh, last year with, with Matt Carpenter, um, I'm, a, I'm afraid that Ellis uh, is there as a platoon bat. Um, uh, and I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how they'll do that. I mean, on, on many other teams, I would say they'd give Colton Wong the shot to do every day first. Um, but this is the, this is the Cardinals and Colton Wong doesn't really have the scouting pedigree, um, to be an obvious, um, to be, to kind of, you know, oh, you know, Colton Wong is a, is a top five prospect mm-hmm. in baseball. We've got to give him a shot, you know, at everyday t- playing time. Colton Wong is a little bit less less well-regarded, and I think that means they could start the season with him and Mark Ellis as a platoon. Yeah, I, I think that's how it should play out. When you look at second base, it's uh, there's not a ton of depth. He's going right behind Neil Walker and Anthony Rendon, and then it's going ahead of Alex Guerrero, Omar Infante, Emilio Bonifacio. So it's really a skills play down there at the bottom. His ADP right now is 269. He was taking the 20th round of the FSTA draft. Uh, you know, set aside getting picked off at first base during the World Series, Wong offers speed upside. So there's a nice risk. And I think the fact that they're willing to platoon him may kind of stink for your fantasy, uh, you know, your fantasy outlook. But this is the best thing for him. If, if they let him hang in there and face the good lefty pitchers, the good lefty relievers, uh, I think that could do more harm than good. And if they play a strict platoon situation, that actually could actually help him keep a good batting average. Yeah. And at that, at that point in the, in the draft, um, I mean, I like him better than the other names you just said, Alex Guerrero for me, um, might be Mark Ellis, um, and uh, I mean, he's he's a pull power guy who probably won't make a lot of contact and doesn't have any speed. So um, Colton Wong has a little bit more opportunity to provide value in all five categories. Um, and uh, I would take the over in batting average um, and stolen bases for sure. Um, I think the power goes to Guerrero and then runs an RBI might go to Guerrero considering he'll play every day. But um Still, overall, overall upside, I'd take Wong. And, uh, you know, he's down there in my draft with Kelly Johnson and Bonifacio. And, yeah, for sure, I'd take him above them. Agreed. Uh, let's shift over to the mount. Uh, first guy that comes to mind, Michael Waka. Uh, last time we saw him in the postseason, didn't work out as well as everybody had hoped. But before that, was just awesome to watch. Uh, we talked about helium earlier. I don't think there's a, a, a pitcher out there with more helium in him right now than Michael Waka. Michael Waka is currently ranked the 16th best pitcher uh, in terms of NFBC ADP, uh, 82. He is just behind Cole Hamels, Anibal Sanchez. He is ahead of the likes of Jordan Zimmerman, Iwakuma, Cole, Shields, Geo, Latos, Miner, Kane, Bailey. Do I need to keep going on this? Uh, it, it's just, to me... We talked about cooling your Jets earlier with Tavares. Michael Waka is somebody I don't want to go anywhere near in a draft because he has way too much helium in him for what we've seen so far. Yeah, the the the, the thing that holds me back um, from joining the chorus is that if I could build uh, a perfect pitcher, it might be Michael Waka. Uh, because my perfect pitcher, and I'm going to actually post about this tomorrow, um, I, I used the, the best research I could find um, on pitching that's come about in the PitchFX era, 
and tried to build a perfect pitcher. So, um, you know, basically stuff like, uh, you know, platoon splits on pitches, uh, which pitches are the healthiest pitches, which type of pitchers are the healthiest pitchers. So, um, basically, uh, there's a certain amount of fastball usage you want to see. Changeups are probably the healthiest pitch. Uh, changeups bust platoon splits. So if you have a changeup and a breaking pitch, um, you can get people of both sides out. And somebody with a high, uh, with a lot of control or the great control, um, usually repeats his, uh, mechanics well and, and stays healthier. So stuff like that. I tried to build a perfect pitcher, and in some ways, uh, Michael Walker isn't there quite yet. And I think that we saw what the problem was in the in the in the playoffs. His fastball and change are are elite yes. pitches. Uh, get elite whiff rates. They get elite ground ball rates. Um, they're really good pitches. The curve um, isn't quite there yet. It doesn't get. Average whiff rate doesn't get uh, barely gets an average ground ball rate, but not really. Yeah, so he's it's, the curve is behind, and what we saw um, in the in the in the playoffs was he got predictable, um, and he basically wanted to start everybody off with the four seam, get ahead, and then put him away with the changeup, and um, it just led to hitters uh, Boston in particular, I think, just attacked his his, his first pitches. And um, they just went after the four scene. They knew a fastball was coming. And um, so I guess what I'm saying is I think Michael Walker could be the perfect pitcher. We don't know that yet. And he's still a pitch short. So, you know, as much as we like him, there's still a to be determined that you can Yeah, agree. A lot of those same critiques are the same ones that I would apply to Danny Salazar. As far, as far as the fastball, the changeup problems with the breaking ball becoming predictable. I, Salazar's another guy that I see some helium in as well. Perfect, you know, I like the perfect pitcher description that you used. Regardless of team, Alex Cobb's a guy that fits that role for me uh, because he does have that third pitch. And I know that uh, Jeff Sullivan had that article today that I enjoyed reading about. So what if you don't have a third pitch if your first two are really good? Uh, that's also worth reading. But with, with Waka, for me, I just don't see how he's leapfrogging those other guys that have proven it at the major league level for longer, just based on what we saw towards the end of the season. I like Waka a lot. I just don't think he's a top 20 fantasy starting pitcher when the season's all said and done. And then, you know, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, and if there's a guy, yeah, if there's a guy in that group that I'm going to hang my hat on, it's Garrett Cole yes. because not not only are his slider and curve elite and his fastball great and his control is there, but his changeup has uh, at least average numbers across the board. So you're talking about a, like a big league changeup along with an elite slider, an elite curve, an elite and, and two elite fastballs. So that's a lot of pitches. He's he's maybe one of the the, the perfect modern pitcher in, in a way. Uh, I should make sure to to mention. Yeah, that definitely works. I mean, Uh, we saw this last year with Alec with Alex Cobb, and and until he got domed by that liner, Alex Cobb was was on pace to you know justify where he was being taken in drafts last year. I saw him go for as much as eighteen dollars in some auctions. Uh, I was not going that high, but a lot of people were very high in him last year, and he pitched to justify it uh, when he was healthy in that regard. But you know, you compare. Waka, where he's going at 82nd overall in NFBC, to Shelby Miller, who's going 113. So he's going 30 picks later, uh, two rounds later in a 15-team mixed format. But skills-wise, the two line up rather well, even though it, it seems like Shelby Miller was just hidden in the postseason and wasn't used. But skills-wise, the two aren't that far apart. No, not at all. I mean, um, they're both... I, I... Shelby might be a little bit more of a one-pitch pitcher, but, you know, the four-seam and the curve are both uh, very good pitches. And um, the change uh, remains to be seen. In fact, you know, if you put the change up against Waka's curve, it would be hard to to figure out which one is better. So um, they're pretty much the same guy, and I'm just going to take whoever falls. Because I will will take one of them um, for my, you know, my third pitcher. Um, and I think that one of them will be around to be your third pitcher uh, in mixed leagues. But um, I don't really want to pay for them to be my first or second pitcher. And they both have similar question marks, and they both have uh, they both have the same park behind them, the same defense. So 
Uh, I'll take the one that's cheaper. And in the FSTA draft, Shelby Miller was actually drafted ahead of Michael Walker. Shelby Miller was taken by Jeff Mann's uh, fantasy alarm that Michael Walker went to Greg Ambrosius, who runs the whole NFBC thing, with the next-to-last pick of that round. So they're being drafted in a similar range. They both went in the same round. Uh, but it just really stood out to me in looking at that, saying, "Wow, that you know, the kid with it, with only so many uh, innings of major league experience is going ahead of a lot of other guys that we all really value uh, from a fantasy perspective." Looking at the last thing for the Cardinals, and I love this guy, but trying to figure out exactly what his role is going to be in 2014 is the frustrating frustrating part, and that's Carlos Martinez. You watch this guy pitch, and that's electric stuff. It's just that he blends into a bullpen that all has really good stuff. And the starting rotation, when you look at it now with Wainwright, Waka, Lynn, Shelby Miller, you got Joe Kelly in that picture, Jaime Garcia, if he can come back. Where do you see Carlos Martinez fitting in for uh, 2014 fantasy owners? You know, when I, I look at uh, I look at him with, with Jaime Garcia coming back, if Jaime Garcia is healthy, I think they give him the shot. Um and, uh, and, and Jaime Garcia is an underrated pitcher and, and should be, I think, drafted even in mixed leagues if he's healthy. Uh, but Carlos Martinez, I think, I, I put him ahead of Joe Kelly for the sixth uh, starting pitcher role uh, just based on, on stuff and, and talent and, you know, uh, future, future role. I think he's, future, he's more likely to be a, a, a starting pitcher in the future. The problem is that he has pretty wicked platoon splits. And, you know, I hate to say the same thing over and over again, but it's kind of important to look at, you know, mm-hmm. an arsenal. And Carlos Martinez's changeup is really, uh, is pretty much bad. So he's got a four seam, a sinker, and a slider. Um, and the sinker and the slider are what people think of when they think of him. I mean, they're, those, are the, those are the crazy movement, crazy whiffs. But they get crazy movement and crazy whiffs from right-handers. From left-handers, his sinker and his slider are, uh, well, his sinker still gets pretty decent numbers, but his slider gets below average uh, whips. So he's got a platoon split on a slider, and, and a slider is his number one pitch. So basically what happens is against righties, he can strike you out, he can mm-hmm. blow it by you, he can get a grounder. Against lefties, he can only get a grounder. Yeah, he has a 103-point uh, OPS split, if you want to use that. He's got a 33-point weighted on base average split. Uh, batting average, 76-point yeah. difference. Uh, and the strikeout rate it goes in half. It goes from 24-7 to 11-8 when you look uh, righty versus lefty. So uh, all excellent points. The ground ball rate does go up. I mean, in his fair, in fair, to be fair to him, it goes up from like 48 to 55%. So he's, he knows about this himself, and he's working on, he's working on obviously I'm working on the changeup. Um, he's, still, he's still through some of them, so he's, it's, it's obviously something he thinks about. Um, but, you know, we may see more of the change when he starts more. I mean, Part of what we're seeing is we're seeing the bullpen version of him because he's been using the bullpen more often, which means, you know, you face fewer op- opposite handed hitters and they put you in a, in a position to succeed. So maybe his changeup is better uh, when he throws it more. Um, but that's the obvious question. And, um, you know, Lance Lynn has a similar problem and yes. has overcome it um, to a certain extent. I mean, he just. He just avoids lefties. He gets grounders. He does what he can just to get through a left-handed at bat. That's what keeps Lance Lynn from being a number one, number two. So, you know, can Carlos Martinez be Lance Lynn um, plus maybe with the velocity? But, you know, Lance Lynn didn't have bad velocity when he started out. Uh, Yes, he can be Lance Lynn right now. And I wonder if they think, well, do we want Lance Lynn right now or do we want to keep him in the minors, make him work on the changeup, and then bring him up when – Jaime Garcia's shoulder finally gives out, or, or we decide to trade uh, Lance Lynn because uh, he's not going to be as valuable to us. Right, in the I think uh, to your point with Martinez, you know, we need to see him address one of these things before we can really get excited about either future. If he's going to be a future closer, he can't do that with those kind of platoon splits. It, it, there's not a long, there's not a, a long shelf life to closers with that kind of platoon split unless they've got a really funky arm angle. And then you look at a starting role, the same kind of thing. There's only so much uh, excitement we can have with him if he doesn't get these issues addressed. Let's jump over to the Cubs. The the other side of this rivalry is kind of fitting that we have the Cardinals and the Cubs in the same show, uh, even though the two organizations are, seem to be rather far apart in where their futures are at the moment. Uh, one of the moves that the Cubs made in the offseason was getting Justin Ruggiano. 
Uh, he is now going to be their center fielder. Uh, this is a guy that is in the last couple of years has been in the Tampa Bay, Houston, Miami, and now the Chicago Cubs organization. This is all within the last 24 months. Uh, what are your thoughts on Justin Ruggiano before I um, express mine? I think uh, I think he'll end up probably platooning a little bit, either with uh, Sweeney or Lake. Uh, and I think that'll be uh, a good thing for him. He's, um, you know, he's a big uh, patience and whiff and power uh, with a little bit of speed guy. But um, everything gets a little bit better when you uh, when you have him face just lefties. Um, his uh, let's see here, his strikeout rate falls from twenty eight percent to twenty two percent. His power, his isolated power against lefties is two fifty against one fifty. Um, so he's really good against lefties. Um, and if you, there are, there are places where you can use something like that. I'm in a, in an 18 team dynasty with really long benches. Auto new, um, you can use that because auto new is a 40 man mm-hmm. roster, uh, with the, the regular mixed league kind of starting lineup. So, um, with the deep leagues and the daily lineups, Reggiano is going to be helpful, but I would rather start him against lefties and I'm not sure um, that the Cubs will start. Here's the thing, the criticisms I have of him. Uh, you know, as far as counting categories, he's helped. He's had at least 10 home runs and at least 10 steals each of the past two seasons. Uh, you know, even though he has only had more than 100 games played in just one of them. Problem is, he's 29 of his last 45 in stolen base opportunities, so he's not a good stolen base guy. And then if you look at his numbers, a lot of his power last year, he had 18 home runs. A lot of it came in that one hot spell that he had early in the first half. I looked at him a couple of weeks ago. His weighted on base average against fastballs for his career is 371. Against any other pitch is 273. So if the league stops selling him fastballs, this could all throw this, this could all fall apart. And if you go back and look at his numbers last year, a lot of these times it was coming on fastballs and 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 he was feasting on them. So if, I don't know why anybody throws a guy a fastball because he's got a proven track record of not being able to handle anything with a wrinkle or anything off speed. And I'd be curious to see how the NL Central, it is a new league for him, it is a new division for him, but not a new league. So the scouting report should be out there. It shouldn't be a problem. Uh, the ballpark may help offset some of that damage. The wind's blowing out. He is a fly ball guy. He can get it up and it can get out because he does have good power. Uh, so I'm, I'm more confident about him hitting 15 plus home runs this year than I am him stealing more than 10 bags. Yeah, it's funny. I just looked at his fastball percentage on our pitch type page, on the pitch type on our pages, and it's down every year. Uh, so they are starting to figure that it's one out. It's taking some time, but they're figuring uh, it out. <laughs> yeah, I guess the 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 question then is, um, you know, who who is a better option for them? Um, and you know, I thought it would be. I thought Junior Lake was just going to be their starting center fielder, um, but. You know, I I don't know how much stock to put into his his negative UZR numbers. I mean, it's it was not even a full season. So uh, when I look at Junior Lake, I know there's a ton of flaws. Um, I know his plate discipline is ter- terrible. I know he he doesn't walk. He doesn't have a great idea of when to swing. Uh, but he's very yes. toolsy. I, I think that he does have power. He does have speed, even though he got caught as many times as he as he stole. And I think that he could be a center fielder when he was in his, when he's young and his athleticism can overcome mistakes. But, um, you know, it's possible that they see him as a left fielder and they just want to be safe. Um, and it's also possible that they um, aren't banking on Junior Lake. I mean, this is something you can see with the Reggiano uh, acquisition is that perhaps they're not banking on Junior Lake and they're just going to see if they get something positive out of them, then they then they're happy about it. But if they don't, um, then they'll just move on. Because you ha- when you look at the, the Cubs system, you have to admit that there's a lot of outfielders coming. And that even, you know, I, th- I saw Chris Bryant in the, in the fall league. I don't think he's a, he's a third uh, baseman. Yeah, agreed. So, so now you've got Chris Bryant, add that to the outfield mix. I think that they're, they're a little bit in the Houston Astros mode where they're like, hey, We'll put all you guys out there. You all get, you know, a certain amount of playing time before July. And if we're in it, you know, you're going to start seeing if you're and you're not playing well, then you're going to start seeing people come up. Because if they get Tanaka, you know, and they maybe sign somebody for the bullpen, another signing for the bullpen, 
this is the kind of team that I could see turning around fairly yeah, quickly. I'm very curious on that Tanaka news. We're hearing reports that he could be signed within the next 48 hours. Uh, it would be nice to get this whole damn thing over with so we can get the other guys signed and we can finish <laughs> our, you know, everybody can finish their depth charts. So we'll see where all that goes. Yeah. Uh, Shifting over in the outfield, Nate Shearholt surprised a lot of people last year, hitting 21 home runs, uh, seemingly out of nowhere. Uh, and a lot of people were trying to explain, okay, wh- what did he do differently? Maybe it's he was platooned better. Not really. I mean, he had this pretty much the same amount of plate appearances against lefties as he had in previous seasons. Maybe it was the move to Wrigley Field. Well, it wasn't that because he had 20 home runs against right-handed pitching, 10 on the road, 10 at home. Maybe it was a somewhat to fly ball ratio. Well, it went from 10 to 14%, so that's a little bit of it. But, you know, what really stood out to me in looking at Sheerholtz was he took the Marlon Bird approach and said, you know what? Forget walk rate, forget contact. If I see a pitch, I'm going to grip it, rip it, and hit it. And like, like Marlon Bird did last year, big power spike. If you look at his strikeout rate, went from 14 to 18%, walk rate went from 10 to 4.3. So gave up some patience, hit some more home runs, and got a nice little deal out of it uh, for, to stay with the Cubs this year. Yeah, um, and I, you know, I actually think that uh, his his platoon out there uh, as a lefty um, suggests that at some point um, Sheerholtz and Reggiano were are destined for each other. Yeah, uh, and uh, that that might be the sort of aim long-term or, or not long-term. I mean, long-term meaning the end of the season, because um, I still see this outfield as, you know, missing another piece, which is obviously going to come from the minor leagues, but they need, they don't want it to seem like they need it from the very beginning. So that's why maybe Reggiano's penciled in at center field to start the season. Sheerholtz is in right field, but you know, as soon as someone comes up, um, Sweeney can drop to, you know, fifth outfielder, and Sheerholtz and Reggiano will will platoon in right. So I, I do think that's what's going to happen. Um, as far as him retaining his power gains, I always thought he had decent power in San Francisco. Um, I'm always surprised when I look at his, his homer totals. Um, his isolated power, you know, always hovered around league average. Um, I regressed it a little bit back from his big game, but I, you know, I'd say, uh, you know, 15 to 20 homers is definitely doable again. Um, and his batted ball distance was just slightly above average. So even though it looks like a big old power surge, it's not like he suddenly started mashing the ball with the, the elite power hitters. Do you so, consider him draftable um, in the mixed league uh, as one of your five outfielders? Okay. Not really. Uh, it's just not enough playing time. Um, and, I mean, would I consider him in like a 14-team 5-0-F with like three or four bench slots? I might put him on a bench slot. Um, in case my starting five outfielders had a weak link, and I could say, all right, you know, I'm not so sure about my fifth outfielder, but I'm going to put Sheerholz on the bench, and at least I'll have a guy against against righties. Yeah, that's where I see. I mean, I see him in an NL format. I like like in my own my own local league, ten team NL. I have him at four dollars. I'm keeping him because there's def- I see there's value there. He went in the 28th round of the FSTA uh, to somebody as a reserve outfielder. But even with the 21 home runs, I, I just don't see him as one of your five outfielders in a mixed league. There's power to be had there. But, I, I, again, not mixed league material for starter. Uh, a guy that pissed off a lot of people last year, Starling Castro. Uh, I know he was taken in the top 25 in a lot of drafts last year, uh, performed. I don't even think he finished in the top 400. Uh, when you look at fantasy value, you just burned a lot of people last year. Uh, there was some discussion that there was uh, he did not get along with Dale Swain last year. Obviously, we have a new manager with Rick Renteria uh, in Chicago. His current ADP is 123 as the eighth shortstop off the board. Where are you sitting with Starling Castro this year? He went a little higher in our in our industry draft, seventy fifth uh, pick in the sixth round. Wow. Okay. Um, and that was right after Everth Cabrera and before JJ Hardy. JJ Hardy was ninety eighth. Uh, so obviously there is a little bit of a weak slot there because Cabrera offers you elite, um, you know, stolen base speed at the very least. And Hardy is already getting into the point where you think, oh, I just I need to get a shortstop. Um, I mean, as much as I like Hardy, you know, 250 average, some missed time, injury, 
you know, 18 to 20 homers, 18 to 25 mm-hmm. homers. That's about all you can ask from him. So there's not much upside. So that's, you know, right after Hardy goes Simmons. I mean, it, it's it's guys where there's a lot more question marks. So I think that Castro fits in between uh, the elite guys who have fewer question marks and the, the, the problems that have bigger question marks. So I, I, I think that's a decent spot for him. Uh, I think that there's some, I feel sometimes like I'm kicking myself for not having seen some things like he's not the most efficient base right. dealer. Um, and so therefore maybe we could have guessed that he wouldn't steal any more than 25 and we should have at least walked that back, um, to 20 or something. Um, you know, I saw a lot of, uh, improvement in his power. If you look at his isolated slugging, it goes from 108 to 125 to 147 before last year. So I saw this incremental improvement in his isolated Mm -hmm. slugging and I saw that he's turning 23 and I thought, Hey, you know, he's pre-peak on everything. He's been improving his isolated slugging rate. He's been taking more uh, stolen base attempts every year. So I bought into it. I'll admit it. Um, and I'm trying hard right now not to, uh, you know, wh- write him out of my life for the rest <laughs> of my life. So I-, I feel like I think he can go 280-10-10 next year and um, and that there's still a bonus uh, on top of that 10 and that 10. I mean, I think he could still go 280-15-15 next year without changing any, you know, thing about his uh, his approach. And for one thing, the Cubs tried to have him yes. change his approach and be more right? and that just led to more strikeouts. So I think he's he should grip it and rip it, and I think they should just be happy yeah, with Yeah, you sound got. pessimistic like me because the, the question from a commenter uh, in last week's episode was uh, in the comments was, can he? where does speed go? And I don't think there's going to be 20 steals in his future this year until he gets better on the base pass. As, as you mentioned, he, he, you know, he stole, he was 25 of 38 in 2012. He was 22 of 31 in 2011. Those aren't good percentages. And we don't know what type of manager Rick Renteria is going to be. He may be a Jim Leland or he may be a Ned Yost in terms of green lights, red lights on his first stolen bases. So I think in the first year, I don't feel comfortable giving Castro any more than 15 projected steals. Maybe he gets 20 attempts. I just don't feel good. I don't think he's a 20 stolen base guy in 2014. Yeah. All right. uh, Let's move over to pitching. Jose Veras appears to be the closer for Chicago. Last year, a lot of people were like, Jose Veras, you know, who's going to be the closer in Houston? Why is he, uh, who are we going to pick? People were taking Josh Fields and Jose Veras ended up doing rather well. If you're, if you're, if your goal was to pile up saves, he got them in Houston before he was dealt away. He ended up with 21 saves last year. Good ratios, 107 whip, 302 ERA, 199 batting average against. So the strikeout rate was good. He's got good numbers. He may not have the name value, but Jose Ferris lines up rather well into a job that Kevin Gregg got 33 saves out of last year. So if Kevin Gregg can do it, anybody can do it, right? Yeah, it's true. Um I think uh, he's definitely a value pick. And, you know, the one thing that I just wonder about is I think that mostly his uh, – the, the the only thing that he – the only sort of Houdini act, the only kind of crazy thing he did last year uh, when I look at his numbers is he finally, uh, for the first time in his career, put up a, a league average walk yes. rate. And, uh, you know, I can see that that it was paired with first stri- with the best first strike rate of his career. So – it could have been as simple as his coaching staff telling him, hey, focus on getting strike one, then you can do what you want after that. Um, that could have been it. And first strike rate has a good year-to-year correlation. So, you know, it could be sticky. It could stick with him. He could put up like a 3-5 walk rate next year in terms of walks per nine. It could be he could keep it under 10%. So if he does that, uh, I see him keeping it all year, especially uh, if – what I think is going to come true, which is that the Cubs are going to be competitive. Um, then I, I really think they'll actually hold on to him. Um, and, uh, and he'll, he'll close all year. Agreed. Here's one of the things that kind of stands out with him. You know, a lot of people will say 244 BABIP last year. That's going, that's going to regress. That's too low. His BABIP over the last five seasons by season, 245, 243, 267, 324 in 2012, and then 244 last year. So a five-year average of 267. We talk often about players setting their own baseline. 
Here's an example of it. So if you think 244 is too low, look at the five-year average and be like, you know what? You know, he's able to do something here. People have a tough time squaring him up. He does, he has a funky delivery, gets on top of that breaking ball rather well. And and the only fear is that the home runs may be an issue. He's given up uh, at least five each of the past five seasons. Going to Chicago is going to hurt that a little bit. Uh, even though he was pitching in Houston, it just a more neutral field as far as depth in the outfield, especially the center field uh, with that. But I like him. This is a guy I was asked earlier today when I was on the, the Sirius XM show, you know, value closer towards the end. Jose Veras is the first guy I brought to mind because you know, people are going to overlook him because he's in Chicago. He doesn't have the name value. But if you take away the name and look at the stats, this guy's good. Yeah, I mean, if you look at 2011 with the Pirates, these are things he can do again. 380 ERA, 124 whip, 10 strikeouts per nine, uh, 4.3 walks per nine. He could do those. He's done them before, A. And he could do those with regression from what he did last year. So it would be worse than what he did last year in some respects. But that uh, those would and they wouldn't be great closer numbers, uh, actually, because the average closer um, actually has about a 10 uh, strikeouts mm-hmm. per nine rate. Um, and has a whip under one and an ERA um, like right around three. So he would be a below average closer, but he would still be a closer. And that would make him a top 30 at his position. Um, and uh, I don't think he's going to cost Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're going after saves, you have to have guys that get saves. I don't care. The strikeout rate, yeah, it is, it's a differentiator when you're evaluating a couple of guys. But if you get a middle reliever that strikes out a lot of guys, he's not getting saves. So it's you know, if you're right. trying to get saves and pursue a goal, this is an ideal third closer. Uh, or if you're only going to draft two and you want to get real cheap, this is the kind of guy that you want to go after because uh, you know, maybe he gets the only caught, the only really struggle you have, or the only kind of caution is maybe he gets flipped within the season. Said okay, maybe the Cubs don't compete as you think they will. Maybe he gets flipped again yeah. as he did last year. I know I had Veras last year. Because I was being cheap, one of the third closer picked him up for a dollar, picked me up all those saves for the Astros before he got moved, and then I lost the saves, and I had to go react and go get another closer uh, to make up that difference because clo- uh, saves are really tight in my league. But that's how that works. Moving over to the starting rotation, uh, a guy that surprised a lot of people last year was Travis Wood. Ended up winning nine games, had a strong ERA at three eleven. Yeah, but when you look at the overall body of work, you have to be a little concerned because you know, his XFIP is 450. There's quite a gap, a gap there in his XFIP. Uh, the home runs, he only he gave up 18 last year, where he had given up 25 the year before. Do you trust Travis Wood as far as you can throw him, or do you think that what he did last year is is a realistic thing? Yeah, I don't, I don't believe. I don't believe. Uh, there's a bunch of different reasons. Um you know, pretty much average command, below average strikeout ability, um, really, really bad at getting ground balls. Uh, that that leaves him <clears throat> that leaves him above average in one category in your, your sort of three primary skills. Um, he had a, a, a really lucky home run for fly ball rate last year, um, and I don't I don't trust him that that's a repeatable skill for him. Um, and then you know I always end up looking at the at the per pitch numbers and you know i see a good four seam um and that's built on movement not velocity because it's an 89 mile an hour mm-hmm. four seam uh i see uh, a bad sinker it gets 30 percent ground balls that's a bad sinker um i see a bad change up it doesn't get whiffs or ground balls uh i see an average slider a bad curve and uh an average cutter so it's the same kind of thing that you see with his overall line where you see bad, 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 okay. <laughs> so I would, that's how I describe Travis Wood. Bad, bad, well, bad. Well, even if we just okay. look at the if we look at the, the fantasy categories, over the last two seasons, good ratios. 115 last year and 120 the year before. ERA was good last year. 310 was not the year prior at 427. The strikeout rate's stable. It's pretty much been six and a half each of the last three years. Walk rates, is it's improved each of the last three if you look at walks per nine. But we're talking for 3.4 to 3.0, so not a, a big game. The home runs, it's about, like I said, 43 home runs over the past two seasons. 
Uh, and he's a fly ball pitcher, so he's at the mercy of Wrigley Field. We don't know how that place is going to play out from game to game. I know last year, I want to say he was a very, very late pick by a lot of people, so there was some value add there. I just don't think – I think we've seen the best of what he can, what he can do because the other, everything else is pretty much going to be on what his ratios are. And, and looking at NFBC, Travis Wood was taking in the last in the last active round. He was taken tw- in the 23rd round uh, just behind uh, – and the starting, rot- starting pitchers, Jose Quintana and Jonathan Neese. Well, I'd, I'd take Quintana Agreed. and Neese over him. Uh but uh, you know when you when you get to the really late rounds, there there's a chance for to squeeze some value out of him. I would say um, temperature is a really big deal uh, for home runs, and Wrigley is pretty cold early in the season. Um, I would say that they probably have one of the bigger splits between you know midseason home runs per game and early season, um, and so there's a chance that you could. Uh, draft Travis Wood in your saber friendly league where everyone's you know laughing at Travis Wood there's a chance you could draft him as a reserve you know pump a month out of him and then either trade him or if nobody's going to trade for him uh, drop him when he when he gets bad and then the homers start going so I mean he's a major league pitcher and every major league pitcher can run into a 250 BABIP season with a you know six six percent home run for fly ball ratio like he did last year and, um, you know, it's not impossible that he does it again. It's just not something that I yeah, want to agree on. on all points. Uh, the last guy I want to talk about with the Cubs is a guy that I consider a sleeper for NL only formats, uh, not draftable in a, in a mixed league. But I think there's some hidden value here uh, in a NL only league. And that's Jake Arrieta, a guy that came over from the Orioles uh, in a trade late in July. Uh, if you look at his overall numbers last year, not attractive. Overall numbers ended up with you know, his ERA was 478. His whip was 133. Only one you know, started 14 games, won five of them. So there wasn't a lot there. And his you know, strikeout rate was in decline. It dropped about three and a half percentage points from the previous season. Walk rate almost doubled, went from seven to 12.7. But when you look at what he did with the Orioles, where he was getting jerked up and down and around, and then what he did with the Cubs, there's a pretty stark difference there. And his numbers for the Cubs ended up holding batters to a 185 batting average, a 648 OPS. Walk rate still high. It's 11.3. Strikeouts were down to from uh, 17.4, so below average there. But when you look at the other numbers, I, I like what he did there. He just ended up getting good results and really spiked his ground ball rate. It was a 33% ground ball rate with the Orioles was a 45% ground ball rate with the Cubs. If I'm looking for a sleeper pitcher in an NL league that plays in a home run friendly park, I want a guy that can keep the ball on the ground. And I like what Arietta did as he made the change from be, uh, becoming an, from being an Oriole and working with the Cubs. Yeah. Um, I will, I would take a chance on anybody with a 94 mile an hour fastball. Um, so that's that's my short short cap blurb <laughs> version for, for Jake Arrieta. You know, I I have to go. You know, I already do this with every pitch, but I have to go to the per pitch stuff for for him because I don't understand it when I when I look at him. Ninety four mile an hour fastball. He throws five pitches, and usually at the point of his career uh, where he is now, if he didn't, if one of those wasn't a major league pitch, he would have right. stopped throwing it. Um, because he because he's now trying to hang on and he doesn't want to throw a bad pitch anymore. He's not developing. He's trying to be in the major leagues. Um, so you know, looking at what he does, um, you know, he throws the sinker a lot, and it it should get more ground balls than it does. That might be one of his main problems. I don't know why that happens, but it doesn't get fifty percent ground balls, um, and it doesn't get whiffs, and he throws it twice as much as his four seamer. So. I don't know what's going on there, and maybe um, maybe he'll improve the sinker next year. But if you look at his secondary stuff, the change, the slider, and the curve, I would describe them all as a league average. Um, and that may not sound super sexy, but if you add three league average uh, secondary pitches to a 94-mile-an-hour fastball, I mean, it seems like there's got to be something there. You know, I, I don't know. I think it might just be a tweak with the sinker or uh, maybe throwing the change a little bit more. The change actually has pretty good numbers. I don't, I don't know. I think there's there's 
a little tweak there. And I think, you know, there's a chance for mixed league. I wouldn't draft him in mixed leagues. I'd just watch him or, or you know, final round pick. But definitely looking at him in, in Yeah, I agree leagues. with all those points. That's why I thought it was a nice move by by the Cubs last year when they were able to flip. I believe it was Feld, yeah, it was uh, Scott Feldman. And they got Pedro Strope, and they got um, Arietta out of that deal. So that was a really nice, uh, r- really nice pull for them. And uh, again, NL only late league, see what happens. But I, there's some potential there. I like those kind of guys that were once highly regarded. They fall upon the hard times again. If they're throwing 94, I'm not willing to write them off because he's not a one pitch pony. He's got other things there. And let's see what happens with him. Any final thoughts? I'm sorry. Go yeah. ahead. No, that's a that was a great trade for them because it's two lottery tickets, and you know both of them obviously have flaws. But Pedro Strope, if they do um, if they do fall out of contention again and they trade Varus, Pedro Strope is the number one guy for stepping in again. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if they got a a, a, a potential closer and a, even a fifth starter out of that trade, uh, right? Uh, well. Final thought with the Cubs is Anthony Rizzo. Uh, and looking at Rizzo last year disappointing season to say the least uh when you look at what he was able to do hit for a low average uh did have the 23 home runs but again at first base that doesn't mean a bunch uh had 40 doubles uh, if you do believe in doubles becoming home runs uh there's not a lot of proof behind that but it, again at wrigley field the wind changes directions doubles can become home runs where are you with anthony rizzo and looking back at last year and looking at this year where do you see yourself drafting anthony rizzo if you could um, I really like him. Uh, I, I think that his combination of power and contact um, should result in much better than a 230 batting average. I think the batting average on balls and play problem is just a luck problem. Um, if you can strike out better than the league average and, and show a close to 200 ISO, um, I don't see why you can't hit 275, 280. Um, so I, you know, my personal projections, uh, for him actually have better batting averages than the projections on our, on our website. So I, I personally like him at a 275 level. Um, I think he's shown growth every season with respect to power and he's only, uh, 24. Um, so, you know, he's, he's pre-peak with that. So my personal power projections are above 25 homers. So now we're talking about a 275 with guy with 25 plus homers. The one thing that people um, point out when, because almost everybody's heard me talk about Rizzo about at this point, the one thing people point out mm-hmm. are his splits. But when you look at his splits, if you look past the results on the splits and you look at the rates, which um, become um, become more reliable right. sooner, um, you see that against lefties, he strikes out 21% of the time. Sure, that's worse than righties. That's still right at the right. average. Uh, and he, he is, he, 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 if he strikes out a league average, and so far he's shown a league average power, if he's league average from the left side and great from the right side, they're not going to platoon. Exactly. And then, you know, those rates aren't, his walk rate and the strikeout rate uh, aren't that far apart. They're within three percentage points of one another, which isn't drastic. What stands out is that batting average on balls in play 212 against lefties and 294 against righties. So he's struggling to make that, you know, that hard contact that leads to uh, the kind of the hits that fall in uh, more often than not. So that's kind of where it stands out. But again, I agree with you. The rates are there, and that's a good thing. So I'm not willing to to say, oh, th- this was a bust last year. And when you look at where he's drafted, he was taken at the at the start of the fourth round uh, in the NSTA draft. So that makes him the 40th guy picked. So somebody in that draft really, really likes Anthony Rizzo because you look at his ADP, his ADP has him as the, at 114, as high as 85, and as low as 152 as the 13th first baseman off the board behind Craig Gonzalez Trumbo and ahead of Abreu Adams and Belt. You know, Abreu is pretty sexy right now, but I, I, I like where that's at, where that sits. I think he, I think he deserves that, that ranking. It, it's surprising to me that he's not going lower actually. Um, and I wanted to get, I wanted to get him lower. So I may not own him a ton this year, even though I want to, because I still want to value him correctly. Agreed. Any final thoughts on the Cubs? <laughs> You know, I, I think that the, there's a lot to like. And, you know, uh, they've got – I think Brian is going to be a corner outfielder, a big slugging corner outfielder with a low batting average. 
Um, I think Almora is going to be uh, a little bit more about contact and defense. Um, uh, I think Soler has the, the highest bust rate of any of their prospects. Uh, he's a little crazy at the plate. Um, I think Baez uh, will stay on the infield, and that will make mm-hmm. him more relevant. Uh, I think Olt still has a chance. So they've got all these positional guys, and they're just missing a pitcher. And if they go out and get Tanaka, they can keep Samarja, and they can have a 1-2 at the top of their lineup, and they can – Trade for a, a three four five, which yeah, that would be interesting. Or, or, I like the old when they made the move last year. I like getting old uh, coming off his bad year uh, that was more health related than anything else. Uh, again, I completely agree. Lots of position talent to like. It's going to be fun to watch them if they do fall out of contention. What they do with their with their final year pieces and what they do to get their kids in. They're, I mean, they could. We'll see how it breaks, but I think they're they're kind of on the, the the tipping point, if you will. It could go either way for them. As somebody who's married to a Cubs fan, I hope it goes a good way, uh, so she stays more, more interested <laughs> in baseball. And my mother is also a Cubs fan, just because you know, WGM is the only way to watch baseball back in the day. So uh, I have two uh, Cubs fans that are highly interested in the season. So we'll see how it plays out. Uh, that's it for episode 88. Uh, episode 89 will drop on Thursday when we record it. We will be going out west to talk about the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Los Angeles Dodgers. So if there are particular players or topics that you want us to cover with either one of those teams, please drop a comment in the post for this show, and we'll make sure we get to that. Anything else, Eno? No, cool deal. thanks, thanks guys.